Welcome, everybody. I'm Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center, and uh, thank you for, for being here today. I want to make a few announcements before I introduce our participants today. On Saturday, February 7th, the Sublime Experience will have Amir Axel, a mathematician and author of the celebrated Fermat's Last Theorem, Paul Fry, the William Lamson Professor of English at Yale, Alan Richardson, Professor of English at Boston College, and Sandra Shapshay, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Indiana and Bloomington. Then on Saturday, February 21st, Particle Fever, The Quest, it will be uh, both a morning and afternoon program. We'll be screening uh, the film Particle Fever, Mark Levinson's award-winning 2013 documentary for which Helix Center Executive Committee member Carla Solomon was a producer. And it tells the remarkable story of the monumental search for the Higgs boson, the elementary force particle that was predicted by the standard model of particle physics. Following the uh, morning screening in its entirety, we will have uh, at least one round table. We're working on the possibility of two. But among uh, the participants, uh, producers Carla Solomon and Andrea Miller will be joined uh, by Alberto Mangal, Canada's most distinguished man of letters, Lisa Randall, Harvard theoretical particle physicist and cosmologist, and Jean Strauss, the acclaimed biographer of Morgan and others, uh, and director of the New York Public Library's Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers. Then on Saturday, March 7th, we have Apprehending Consciousness. Among the participants are David Chalmers, professor of philosophy and co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness at NYU, and Pete Hutt, professor of astrophysics and head of the program for interdisciplinary studies at the Institute for Advanced Study. And then Saturday, March 14th, we'll have a program on curiosity at which Alberto Mango will again distinguish our roundtable. So watch for further announcements about those. Now on to today's program. One of our participants uh, is coming from upstate and uh, had to dig out of the, uh, the snowfall, so he'll be joining us um, shortly, we understand. But as I say your name, if you can raise your hand so uh, the audience members uh, uh, recognize you. Nacho Armani. Armani is a master ethnic percussionist, multi-instrumentalist and composer, currently based in New York City. His music career began at age six as a classical piano student and singer with the Spanish National Choir and Orchestra, and he now works as a producer, performer, therapeutic musician, and educator. Beyond his early classical training, Nacho has studied traditional rhythms from around the world, specializing in North African and flamenco rhythms. He has a degree in pedagogy and philosophy from the Universidad Complutense de Madrid. He has taught classes at many conservatories and universities and is a faculty member at the New York Open Center's Sound and Music Institute. He's developed drumming programs for incarcerated women and juveniles, rhythm and tempo-based groups for children with pervasive developmental disorders, as well as adapted live percussive sound for clinical use in pediatric therapeutics. His innovative technique of elemental sounds and rhythms is based on natural patterns of growth that promote brain function and body alignment. His critically acclaimed first album, Silence Light, in 2007, with the Nacho Aramani World Flamenco Sextet, was counted one of the 10 top jazz albums of the year by All About Jazz. He's performed and recorded with Lionel Luke, if I'm saying his name correctly, Liz Wright, and Angelique Kijo, among others. He has composed, produced, and performed the 2014 In Time, a nine-CD rhythm-based music-listening therapeutic method to improve brain function in collaboration with Sheila Allen and Advanced Brain Technologies. 
Edgar Chueri is Professor of Applied Physics at the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department of Princeton University and Associated Faculty in the Department of Astrophysical Sciences Program in Plasma Physics. He's also Director of Princeton University's Engineering Physics Program and Chief Scientist at the University's Electric Propulsion and Plasma Dynamics Lab for Advanced Spacecraft Propulsion. He's the president of the Electric Rocket Propulsion Society and also director of Princeton's 3D Audio and Applied Acoustics Lab. The profile of Edgar by Adam Gopnik appeared in the January, 2013, January 28, 2013 New Yorker, Music to Your Ears, The Quest for 3D Recording and Other Mysteries of Sound, in which he was described as, quote, a distinctly modern type engineer esthete, unquote. Vijay Iyer, a Grammy-nominated composer pianist who was described by Pitchfork as, quote, one of the most interesting and vital young pianists in jazz today, by the Los Angeles Weekly as a boundless and deeply important young star, and by Minnesota Public Radio as an American treasure. He was recently named Downbeat Magazine's 2014 Pianist of the Year, a 2013 MacArthur Fellow, and a 2012 Doris Duke Performing Artist. The New York Times observes, there's probably no frame wide enough to encompass the creative output of the pianist Vijay Iyer. He has released 20 recordings, most recently for the ECM label. These latest include Mutations, featuring his compositions for piano, string, quartet, and electronics. Rade Rade, am I saying that correctly? Rade Rade. Uh, Rites of Holly, a silent film by Prashant Bhargava, uh, with his uh, score performed by International Contemporary Ensemble. And the forthcoming Break Stuff, featuring the Vijay Iyer trio, held by Pop Matters as, quote, the best band in jazz. In 1998, Vijay received an interdisciplinary PhD in the cognitive science of music from the University of California, Berkeley. His dissertation, subsequent research, and creative work are focused on embodied music cognition. He's published articles in numerous journals and anthologies, and in the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Critical Improvisation Studies. He is the Franklin D. and Florence Rosenblatt Professor of the Arts in the Department of Music at Harvard University. Vijay Iyer's trio's new album, Break Stuff, is out February 10th. Marina Karsakova-Kren is a professional pianist and scholar in music cognition. Her research is focused on emotional responses to music and on the perception of melodic transformation. Currently, Marina teaches music cognition at Turo College, and she performs regularly as a member of Union City Chamber Players and is the author of books and scientific papers um, her latest book being Music as Magical Journey, The Story of Tonal Gravity, Melodic Objects, and Motion in Tonal Space, which makes a friendly introduction to the science of music. Tristan Parrish, who is on his way, is a composer and sound artist whose work is inspired by the aesthetic simplicity of math, physics, and code. Wire magazine described his compositions as an austere meeting of electronic and organic. One Bit Music, his 2004 release, was the first album ever released as a microchip programmed to synthesize his electronic composition live. His latest circuit album, One Bit Symphony, has received critical acclaim, New York Press calling it sublime, and the Wall Street Journal saying its oscillations have an intense hypnotic force and a surprising emotional depth. His award-winning work coupling one-bit electronics with traditional forms in both music, such as his work Active Field and Observations, and visual art, in his machine drawings and microtonal wall has been presented around the world from Sonar and Ars Electronica to the Museum of Modern Art and Bitforms Galleries. Without further ado, our panel.
Well, I'll ask a, what sounds like a stupid question, but uh, um, I would be interested to hear what my fellow panelists would say if I asked, what is music? Because um, I don't really know if there is a stable definition of it. There is no. Uh, this is the most amazing art. And for me, uh, and I'm a professional musician and scholar in music cognition, uh, music is a sorcery. It's a magical thing. We can learn about the foundations of music, about the elements of music, the sources of music, but why music affects us so deeply, and what ways music is able to deliver not just emotions. And they're not basic emotions, they're complex emotions, and even general ideas. This is still, um, uh, it's a magic. Uh, and the most amazing thing about music is it's accessibility. Everybody understands what music is, and music is able to reach everybody. It's a truly universal language that has no uh, barriers. It affects everybody. Uh, people with no music education, people with no musical training, people of different cultures are able to understand the heart of music even when they listen to exotic music. And my own research shows that people with no musical training not only know and feel with great precision the most important elements of music, but they also are able to recognize musical styles, uh, some esoteric knowledge from music, uh, musicologists. Um, if I was asked to give a definition of what is music, kind of Vedra definition, I would say music is a distribution of perceived tonal tension along the era of time. Artful distribution. You said perceived tonal tension. Yes. <clears throat> uh, because perceived tonal tension, it's the main morphological principle of music, and it's so primitive that it's exactly this primitive nature of music communication that makes music available for everybody. Um, and we, we feel tonal tension on the level of muscle responses. It's a vi they're visceral responses, they're subconscious, they're intuitive responses. We don't need to be trained, we just need to be born into human society and have normal hearing. We don't need special training to understand the language of music. And the foundations of uh, um, melodic elements of music are in the physics of sound. This is another important thing that we are dealing with just direct intersection, intersection of the physics of sound and uh, human neurobiology. And of course, it's a cultural uh, construct available only to people. Just, uh, just to fill you, we started with Vijay's question, what is music? Uh -huh. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> no, you are good. <laughs> <Jump nobody. right. laughs> um, hi, everybody. <laughs> Um, are we kind of all now you have offering to answer. our answers? <laughs> um, 
Gosh. Well, I'll give it a shot. Um, um, I mean, I guess if we take for granted the perception of pitch, then we're talking about higher level things, like the organization of sound over time and rhythm and these things that probably we all respond to in a variety of different ways. I think that our perception of music comes from a lot of different interacting things. Some are social, some are physical, some are um, um, more cognitive, I'm sure, and some are just purely aesthetic, whatever. Maybe it's, that's something, that's what I took up from the last part of what you're talking about, but I might be misinterpreting it. Um, but one of the ways that at least I interact with music a lot and, and, and where the music that I write comes from is finding this intersection between um, simple patterns, things that we can understand on a, um, on a very basic cognitive level. Um, things like repeating structures, um, simple rhythms, simple melodies that build up into forms that are more complex than those parts, but they are nonetheless based on these very simple ideas that we can understand. And, and part of that for me is that that is a, is taps into the part of our experience of the world where we are attracted to things that we can understand. And so an example of that is like if you learn about biology, then you can understand how the animal form can grow from some simple biological rules. Or if you understand physics, then you can understand, you know, um, um, the sort of more basic ways that the building blocks of, of, of nature form complex things. And, and we find beauty in that simplicity. I think we can connect on a sort of profound way. And clearly, I'm just jumping in because I just ran up from the car. But um, I think we can connect to these, these, these things that we can understand in a different way than just a, something that's more aesthetic or more resonant. I think that like when when we can understand something, when, when it gives us something to latch on to, then we can find some sort of beauty in that. Um, and that that is true in a lot of different art forms and how we see nature, but also true in, in the perception of music, I would think. I think I just brought up too many different points there. But. Well, for me, um, I see and I understand music like a multidimensional experience. For me, music is an experience which is really, really hard to, to record. <clears throat> we do that, right? But uh, we know, unless we develop three-dimensional three or immers immersive sound, that music engages so many different levels of the human being, right? And uh, the most important thing, as I'm saying, is it's an experience, really hard to, to reproduce again, engaging different parts of the of the brain, different parts of the body with resonance, the brain with entrainment, just to these two simple basic principles of music, right? Resonance, like vibration, that isn't really engaging the body in every cell of the body, and entraining, entrainment, engaging uh, the, the brain, right? So these two elements for me are the most important thing. If we talk about more like principles of sound, resonance and, and entrainment. But for me, above all, music, is a tool for transformation. Is is a tool, is pure technology that has been used for thousands of years 
in different communities of the world as service to the community for, for challenges, for really, really go through daily life. Why? Because all these principles, right? But music has been in, in cultures through the very, very first thing. Sound, basic, before music, is what I want to talk about, is, is, is the source of life. Sounds promotes movement. Sounds really creates vibration, and we are vibration. We were discussing in Atlantis is like our fair relationship with the, with the world when we were nine months in, in the womb of the mother, our relationship with the world is through sound, is through vibration. So that's how we codify emotions, that's how we codify language and information. And it's really interesting because if you pay attention, when we were in the womb, our ears are plugged. So how we perceive sound? We perceive sound through vibration, through bone conduction sound. And then I'm going to do a little experiment with you if you... Can I do it? Sure. Okay. So, does anybody... Can I hear this? Can you listen? Can I do something with you? Do you mind if I put this <laughs> on your head? It's <laughs> all right? You sure? Okay. So, let's do this. Now, anybody can hear this? All right. Can you give us the tone? How is that possible? Because sound moves through our bones. Um, through vibration, sound and through our bones connects directly through our inner ear, which is, you know what, the cochlea is one of the first, first, first things that is developed in uterus to, to, to get information through, through life, through sound. So this is, we are vibrational beings. And through vibration, we codify, we codify life. So just, just to remark these principles, but remind, this, remind also this cultural effect of sound for communities, how sound and rhythm has been always there as a tool for the communities to transform and go through daily life processes. That's why, how I understand music. Uh, I should confess that I don't have the faintest idea what music is um, on a fundamental level. And um, I have a, even a problem drawing a line between perception of sound, which is you were describing was primordial uh, activity, and music itself. And that line seems to me very culturally conditioned. What, what is a, a simple tone for you could be music to somebody else what is a choral tone singer in Arabia could make somebody run out of the room, but could charm somebody else. So, so uh, these are all, I find, uh, the line shifts so, so much that from a scientific level, I can give a definition which is almost banal, that uh, music is a sound that gives someone pleasure to some extent, or moves you. And that's, really, that's not very pregnant, doesn't tell you much. but. Uh, only then I can have a definition. Anything beyond that is so culturally conditioned, so complex, so beautiful, and so powerful, and that uh, it, it, it kind of evades pinpointing as a definition. I'm per particularly in, um, enchanted or terribly interested in how humans interact with the spatial aspect of the sound. 
And it's interesting because we experience sound on a daily basis, not just as pitch, uh, rhythm, melody, extent and time, repetition and so on, timbre. We experience it as, locate, lo uh, as localized in space somewhere or moving in space somewhere. Yet it doesn't, uh, as in music, it, because we have limitation in performance, we cannot make a violin fly around the room. So this seems to be a limited uh, extent to which specialization has been used in composition. To give you an example of what I think, uh, why I think uh, spatial aspect is terribly important in music, and one component that now with technology can be, for the first time, really used as part of the palette of the musician. Imagine, imagine waking up in the morning nicely to the sound of a bird song right outside your, your window. Very nicely, we all love bird songs, and composers wrote great music based, based on bird songs. So that's one day. Now imagine the same exact experience, the same bird, the same melody, and the same uh, lulling wake up that you go through, except this time, the bird is inside the room with you. And it would be very unnerving. Because first, your mind tells you, from the reverb, from the acoustics of the room, you know right away, your brain knows right away, there's a bird trapped in the room. So there's an anxiety. Being trapped with a wild animal is not something, even, even a bird can be threatening. So on one, one day, the experience is that of mus musical experience that's lulling, that's very um, comforting. On the next day, it, with that, so the bird trap in the room, the spatial um, aspect of the sound, which is the only thing that has changed, can be terrifying, can, can uh, create anxiety. You have a bird trap in your room. So I'm, I'm very interested in how the spatial aspect of the sound can tremendously color your, your uh, um, connection or, or your experience of, of the musicality of the sound. And I'm very interested, I'm not a musician, I'm, um, I'm a scientist, I'm, I'm, I, I study the interaction of humans with, with the, how humans perceive sound, especially how humans perceive the localization of sound. And I'm very interested from sitting among musicians to hear how, if I give you today a, a technique where you can uh, project sound anywhere in space and play it back for your listeners anywhere in space, um, which we can do almost right now for the first time using advanced computers and, and technologies, how would you use it as a musician? So that's the next question I want to put around the table. Um, as musicians, how would you use such a palette, such a, such a tool? Imagine the entire space is now your canvas, so you're not limited to just pitch, rhythm, um, you know, melody, and so on, but now you can say, I want a violin to come from infinity, come whisper in my ear, fly off, and then I want somebody to, uh, to whisper in my other ear a song, as opposed to sing always from a speaker in front of you. At least for me, um, that's something that I'm specifically not trying. I'm trying to do the opposite of that in my own work. I'm trying to make us very aware of the sound source as a point in space coming from a physical material. So that if you play a, uh, a note on a, a pitch on a violin, that we are, as listeners, very aware of this bow, this string vibrating in space as bowed by this hair of this bow with a little bit of friction and the resonance of the, the body of the violin amplifying that sound and spreading outwards from a location over there coming towards us. And, but, and but that is specialization in, in, in its own. Right, it's, but it's, 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 um, 
it's one that's extremely explicit and very direct and very much tied into our experience of sound. Like you, like you said about that we typically think about sound as coming from points or when it's from the ocean, we kind of think of it as a spatial thing, but it's still very much delineated in space. And um, for whatever reason, and this is just me, and I'm, I'm not meaning to close off your inquiry at all, but um, I'm interested in this sort of um, separation almost. A separation that just makes us more aware of what we're experiencing. This kind of, um, I guess it's the idea that like um, the piece of music for me is, and this is why I think live sound is so important as opposed to recording for instance, is that the, um, the piece of music is an experience that's unfolding by the means of physics and space with us as the listeners and our, our um, experience of, of that music is very much tied to the sound production in space. Um, yeah. Would it be fair to say that in, in a sense you're, um, you're one bit uh, music sort of underscores the, um, the aspects of Im the Im embodied music cognition by disembodying it in a certain sense? Well, um, yeah, should I should say that I work actually a lot with electronics, even though I'm interested in acoustic instruments. But the way I work with electronics is very low level. I use this like one bit waveforms, which are just on and off pulses of electricity that make the speaker membrane move in and out like this and create sound. And it's a very, very primitive approach to electronic sound. And um, a lot of that is to make us aware of the speaker as an instrument. And I would call that Im embodied. And I'd even maybe go a step forward to make to say that it's trying to make us aware of how the electronics are even working, mm. that um, the more we can see that system as something very mechanical and physical, the less magic it has, and the more we can kind of be connected to it experientially. Um, but that's, that's really just, just my approach, which is this very kind of concrete approach. Um, but but in, in experiencing the sound, um, the, the listener is uh, listening the sound that has been reflected off surfaces around him or her, reaching their ear. So the, the reverb mm -hmm. is part of the experience. Right. But that's what I'm referring to, this, uh, 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 being able to control that or, or use it as part of your palette. I, mm -hmm. I know actively you're not when you compose the one-bit music. Mm -hmm. But on, uh, to what extent you, you feel that the uh, uh, entire spatial aspect of the reproduction is important to the listener? Yeah, well, very, it's very important. But for me, that's an aspect of the performance of a piece of music in a space. In space, yeah. right. And like us in this room, hearing our, our voices yeah, reflected. That's very important stuff. for acoustic music production is to reproduce the reverb of a room. Right. And when you have a 3D audio technique to do that, uh, you can then create the illusion that you are in a real space, right. or actually produce a real space, right. which for the first time now can be done. Well, it's really interesting because uh, uh, my approach to music is always from traditions, traditional music, but always music and sound happens in space. Always, mm -hmm. always. Yeah, I, I want to tell something about the space and music. Um, so, on one hand, we are dealing with acoustics, and acoustic is about vibration and sound medium, it could be. 
air or water, it could go through metal, through bone. And this is the basically space of acoustics, of the physical sound. But when we are talking about music, as we all understand, so this is a, which means something which is made of melodies and harmonies, we discuss very different space. It's a space of tonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of very, very separated from acoustics, because you can take the same melody, let's say Mary had a little lamp. Somebody could start playing it on violin, and other person would finish it singing. So the uh, timbre is different. Uh, it, violin could be on a radio, and somebody would finish it on the street. So physical space is different. But the melody is the same. It has, it's an object. It's a melodic shape, which can be divided between different players, and it can be produced in different spaces, but still we feel it as something united, because this melody exists in tonal space. And um, not a long time ago, there was a, a very interesting uh, book written by a very interesting person, very conservative philosopher, Roger Scruton, who, um, the book has named The Aesthetics of Music. Roger Scruton, he's not only author of uh, more than 40 books, mostly on philosophy. He's a Kantian philosopher. Uh, but he's also a composer of two operas, uh, staged in Prague. So in this book, he uh, reminded about so-called uh, acosmatic space. This word came from ancient Greece. Acosmaticus. Uh, that was the name for the students uh, of Pythagoras. Pythagoras used to uh, lecture from behind the screen, so not to uh, 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 distract their attention. So they were listeners who listened to them. So when we listen to music, we listen <coughs> to shapes, to ideas. We go into this special space which transcends acoustics. It's not just uh, sound production. It's not just sound events. Those sound events, they, they came together into melodies and harmonic sequences thanks to special forces, forces of tonal attraction. And what is amazing about music, it's, it's actually a fantastic thing about music, that in music we are dealing with phenomenal space of tones of phenomenal gravity. Because the main thing about tonal system of reference, which is just musical scale, that the tones differ in, uh, in their frequencies, and this is acoustical uh, characteristics, but they differ in psychophysics. They differ in their degree of attraction to tonal center. It's very easy to, um, uh, to illustrate. May I? I have to go to the piano just one second to make it everybody clear. Seven basic elements. 
five, six, seven, eight. Just seven basic elements. All the incredible wealth of music that we know today is made just of seven basic elements, <laughs> and they are repeated again and again because space of music is organized uh, cyclically. It's the same seven names. This is how we got 88 keys on the piano. So playing with just seven um, notes, basic elements, we are, are able to create incredible compositions, incredible structures. And we feel motion in music because we have stable tones and unstable tones. This is unstable. This is stable. So all we have in music, it's a playing with tonal attraction. We are within the field of tonal gravity. It's gravitational forces. And this is so simple to perceive that music is available for everybody. Already uh, newborn have different pattern of brain activation for dissonant and consonant. Already two months old recognized that this is pleasant to the ear and this is not. We are born with musical expertise. BJ. And when we listen to music, it's tonal space. <laughs> I guess I find this particular um, construction uh, to be pretty specific to Western culture and uh, even the, uh, you know, the idea that music comes from only the interaction of tones uh, and tension and release in that particular way is very much a product of Western culture and Western thought. And um, I think you would probably agree, and perhaps you would too, that uh, uh, there are a lot of other ways of putting music together, and also a lot of ways of experiencing music. Um, I think uh, what you're calling dissonant, um, it was to Haydn, um, it was less dissonant to Mozart, and even less dissonant to Brahms, and certainly not really dissonant at all to someone like Schoenberg. And there's also the possibility of incorporating a certain amount of um, tension into what you might call a sound that produces pleasure, which is how you just define music. Um, so, uh, in the same way that with food we can accommodate a certain amount of bitterness in the course of a meal, like if I, you know, if I had a shot of espresso, which I just did, I mean, I had, um, even though I'm not acting like I did, but I did, uh, um, uh, you know, it, uh, that can be pleasurable too. Uh, this thing that we might perceive as tense is actually useful at moments. Uh, and I think also stability is relative. I mean, if you listen to blues, it has dominant chords as stable entities, you know? Um, and if you listen to someone like Thelonious Monk, he uh, will incorporate roughness, that it, like the auditory experience of tones rubbing against each other as part of the aesthetic, you know? And that can be... Um, we can tolerate a certain amount of roughness and, in fact, even enjoy it uh, in the course of 
musical experience. Um, I guess I've been, you know, I still am thinking back to my first, my opening question because um, I've been trying to see if there's a way that we're all talking about the same thing. And I'm not actually sure that we are yet. Um, uh, it's not, we don't even have to exactly, but, um, uh, but my, I suppose in, in particular, we've been talking about music as something that happens to us so that we perceive or receive, which means that generally it seems that we think of music as not our own doing, but somehow coming from somebody else. Um, and so I guess I just think back to, um, well, a friend of mine, uh, Gary Tomlinson, he's a professor at Yale, and he has a book about to come out, I think it comes out in a week or so, called Music Gang, The First Million Years. And as you know, we as a species are only a tenth of that in terms of our own, you know, the, the amount of time that we've been on this planet as homo sapiens. So what could he possibly be talking about? Um, and uh, this, these are the kinds of questions that I, I'm interested in because if we're gonna start making assertions about the cognitive universals of music, like that everybody in the world hears something as dissonant or something like that, we have to make sure that um, we're really talking about everybody in the world. And for me, it makes more sense to start from the opposite end, which is, um, what must it have been like to be not yet human, for example, but find yourself walking, um, early hominids. You know, every, when, you, when you go to the Museum of Natural History, the sort of canonical scene of early hominids or a little nuclear family walking through the woods or something like that, right? So just imagine that experience and imagine that you start hearing each other walking in sync, like you hear the footsteps starting to synchronize, and then um, could that be the beginning of what we're calling music? In other words, does music actually come from not just sound of anything, but sound of us? Because that to me is what makes the most sense. If we're gonna talk, we're gonna even use this word, which is a very fuzzy word, and, and uh, I mean, for me, the biggest problem is I don't know where music stops. You know, if we um, say it starts in a certain place, like it starts with sound, or it starts with um, tonal gravity, or it starts with rhythm, where does it end? What's the other side? Like, is there an experience that is not music? And that is, actually, there's no answer to that because that's entirely a cultural decision about what the boundary of this thing that we call music is. In fact, it's bound up with our name for it. You know, we say this is, this is music. But the other thing it's bound up with is that we in the last hundred years have gotten used to receiving music without seeing it. So basically we have it in our midst, like in everyday life, the equivalent of acousmatic music, which is what we call recorded music, you know? And that's only been around for a hundred years, and if you think about music in the last million years, the last even hundred thousand years that humans have been here, a hundred years doesn't make doesn't have any significance evolutionarily speaking. So we evolved to something that 
we were before we had recorded music, which was to hear each other making sound, right? Not just to hear sound in general, but to hear each other. That's what we're really good at doing. I mean, we've evolved to be really good at hearing each other. We can hear footsteps. If I hear footsteps, I can tell if it's a man or a woman most of the time. I mean, that's statistically true that most of the time you can tell. And in fact, that's so true that um, when people audition for the symphony, they also audition behind a curtain. And not only that, but they put a carpet down so that they can't hear your footsteps because um, it was found that um, people who you know, uh, decide who's the best in these auditions were somehow being implicitly sexist. Uh, so they actually conceal gender in order to get the best players. So that's how good we are at hearing each other, that we can hear properties of somebody's body just by hearing them walking, for example. And we're also really good at hearing our environments. Uh, of, um, my um, graduate advisor had a moment in the early 70s where he got to hang out with Stevie Wonder. And uh, at the time, Stevie Wonder was making Inner Visions or a Talking Book or one of those albums. And uh, so my, my friend got to go with Stevie Wonder to the head of what was at the time Columbia Records, which was at the top of the Sony building. And they rode an elevator up to the top floor and you exit the elevator into this pyramid-shaped atrium. So Stevie Wonder comes out of the elevator and he says, you just stood there for a second. He said, there's something up this room. It's like the walls are triangular or something like that. <laughs> so that's how good we are at hearing space, you know, hearing um, the space around us. But that's partly because we've evolved to uh, perceive each other. I, I want to touch on many things I feel strongly about and mostly agree very much with what you said. One thing you mentioned early on when uh, commenting on Marina's little experiment uh, is the fact that uh, what we perceive as something, let's say, unstable or atonal, can evolve taste-wise, can evolve across even the same cultural temple, going from Haida to Schoenberg, but also can, as I said earlier, can evolve cross-culturally. It could be something dissonant and, and nice. But there are, it turns out, according to some recent research, um, some very, very universal uh, feelings we get from some sounds, which are almost common to all of us, would have to do with our evolution. For example, uh, it's been shown quite recently with research on uh, how we interact with reverberation, late reflections, that if, uh, if I take, if I give you headphones or if I can simulate, uh, simulate 3D sound from speakers and simulate the sound of very early reflections, in other words, I, I make a click and make, you sound, I make it sound as if it's coming to you very uh, early from, uh, the reflections come to your ear very early, you will be very anxious. All of us will be very anxious. Almost 100% almost of subjects feel anxiety of some sort because that simulates the sound of what happens if you're trapped in a corner and your brain knows that this is, as, as a humans have to evolve uh, in getting away from danger that we are trapped. Now, uh, if I take you into an anechoic chamber, um, and I have one in my lab, or if you go in an anechoic chamber, or, or similarly if you stay in the wild, uh, in, the, in the open, there are no reflections. Yeah. And there, almost all humans have a sense of, um, sense of um, uh, enhanced alertness 
or you know, yes, uh, tense alertness. It has to do with the fact that we are exposed to danger. We don't get any reflections. That means we're totally open. So holes are designed to have just the right amount of reverb. Um, what, I'm, what I'm getting to is something you touched on, is that where is the limit of what, what music is? If I define music as, as uh, simply, simplistically as I designed it earlier, which is a sound that gives us some kind of feelings or emotions or pleasure, then it seems to me the limit is almost nowhere. It's, uh, it's almost to the point where even a verb by itself can, can just the reverb of this click in a room or in the open can give us anxiety, all of us, or give us, give us pleasure. And I found that tremendous, that we have these fundamental mechanisms. It probably have to do with the fact that we have to survive or worry about predators coming at us and feeling trapped or not trapped. Absolutely, we react mm -hmm. to auditory stimuli. That, that's true. Uh, just, I think we are discussing what music is. And uh, there are different directions. For example, there was a music by Xenakis, which was very popular till recently. And uh, he used uh, random numbers to create something really interesting. And some of his creations are very beautiful. But this is not exactly what we would tell, uh, name music, because still today we understand music something which is made of melodies and harmonies, something you would sing to your child or recognize as familiar melody. And music really gives people pleasure, by the way. Uh, music activates biological reward pleasure, um, uh, nucleus accumbens, which also reacts to sex and food. Even sad music, because it gives us pleasure. Even it's, Zanakis? It's, uh, he used, yeah, random numbers, stochastic No, music. I'm asking you, uh -huh. does Zanakis give us pleasure? Uh, I found it interesting. But that's not what I'm asking you. <laughs> I'm asking you, you just I made it. I don't know, nobody did, yeah, still did research. I think, I think what happened, because I was bitten by and, um, a scientific bug, so I'm looking for precise data. So when, uh, when we're talking about melodic universals, and when I say they're universals, I, it's not just conjecture. It means that people around the world recognize octave, which, oh, is, right. the, which yeah. is the first overtone of harmonic series. And octave, till just a thousand years ago, uh, was sometimes substituted with the fifth, quinta, which is the next overtone. My point is that melodic elements are defined by the physics of sound. If you have two harmonic series, two different tones, which have the beginning of the harmonic series overlapped, the strongest overtones overlapped, they're perceived as dissonant. Most likely it's related to the neuronal cost of processing. It's easier to process. It makes this uh, event silent. And also another thing... But can I just ask... Yes? Um, when you ask someone do you perceive this as dissonant, even in a scientific setting, there's already culture around them to figure out what that even means. Yeah, but right? active is not culture. Active is active around the world, even for Australians that do not have melodies. I mean, aboriginals, I don't want to be obnoxious, it's just they don't have melodies and harmonies that European music has, but they do recognize active. My, my, my point is that melodic elements, they are not ordered by somebody. It's a discovery of human mind, discovery through our visceral reactions. And as far as tonal tension and release, um, 
we know about music by uh, Schoenberg and his students, Berg and Webern, who worked with 12-tone music. Basically, they tried to escape the, tone, the dictatura of tonal tension. And in their music, they used noble technique of polyphony. They would take, create a melody made of old chromatic tones, never repeating any of the tones, so to avoid any tonal uh, attraction, any preference, any hierarchy. And they would work with this series. They would invert it, they use it in different um, timbers, they would even collapse it. Nobody sings those melodies. It's interesting music. But when we talk about blues, it's still tension and release. If you start to play for us, we would immediately recognize that this sounds less tense than this. But Marina, um, yes. if, we, if, we, if we go more than 500 years ago, we don't have, we, we will not even talk about music about this, in these terms. Yeah. We, we will not talk in, at, any, at any term, we just, first we just do it. And that will be enough. What do you mean, 100 years ago? That uh, what you're talking about is basic on an on a, um, agreement of 100 years ago of Western music. I don't think it's no, an agreement. Me, I think it's a discovery. It and it's, let me, because I'm, I want to talk about the, the, the results of the studies. It's my personal study mm -hmm. in perception of tonal modulation, which is the discovery of uh, European tradition. It's, it's quite a sophisticated thing for music theories, and it's nothing what people with no music education. What I found that people from different countries from around the world, they listen to harmonic progressions that modulate to different degrees, and they perfectly recognize what is... There is no modulation and no, in many, many cultures and musical cultures. Yeah, but my point is that uh, European tradition, uh, it's not an agreement. It's a discovery that became accepted. But, uh, okay, that's great, but it's mm -hmm. European tradition. But we have other continents in the of world course. that create music. Of course. And probably European tradition is based on all this music that has been done for hundreds of thousands of years ago? Uh, let's say 50,000 years ago, up okay. today. This is the, the conservative estimate that music exists at least for 50,000 so years. So perfect. So then yeah. we have 15,000 years of music, of doing it, mm -hmm. of sharing it, yeah. of being in circles like this. We have to pay attention how music was performed. And for me, this is the key, because music was a part of the community performed probably always in circle, for certain, certain, certain objectives to promote, in, to promote to the individual and to the community. So first of all, the music production and recording thing is 100 years ago. The stage in music, for me, is the most unnatural thing for music, stage, and people... You are not alone. Glenn Gould did not like to perform on stage. Richter did not want to be seen when he was performing. Exactly. Yeah. So what, what I think you, 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 you promote a great question, what is music? And this, I, I agree, we have to speak the same language, because if not, we are lost in concepts. And for me, music is not even a concept. It's you, not We are a concept. trying to really... Yeah. It's uh, a living tradition. ...describe something that is... that, that, that has been existing be, before us, maybe. maybe. Sound has been before us, and we just jump into these poles of life, of, of this vibrational field, that then we, as humans, we start to pick up some elements from that, and we just start creating music for what? For me, the question is, we do music for what? But the key is that we do music for 15,000 years ago till now. With just, like a, with a, with a just one tone, I can demonstrate here, you know, to really complex harmonies. Because the human, the human existence evolved as, and the music evolved with it. 
but we cannot just explain music as the, as the last hundred years ago. No. Because, because music is something that comes from human nature, and I think it's really interesting what you're talking about. It's like, what is about pause? What is, the, what is this? There is no harmony here. There is no tonal progression. This is pulse, this is rhythm. We can discuss if this is part of music or not. I think it's one of the elements of music. But what is true is that in many traditions ago, this is a gourd. They were doing music with elements. With each community, what do we have? We have a stone, we start creating pulse. For what? Because maybe we have a pulse, we can be together in a space and that will promote something in us. Maybe a sense of security, maybe to dance, because if we attend, each tradition has rhythm. For what is the rhythm? I wonder if, um, to almost go back to actually what you were talking about in terms of our, our pace, our walking, our steps and stuff. I thought it was so interesting because um, it's something that I've thought about before in terms of mathematics, actually, is that our experience in the world, like as human beings, is based how can I say this? Like walking is very intrinsic to us. It's, a dis it's ordering time into these discrete steps, whether they're even or uneven or whatever. There's sort of step zero, step one, something might be like 10 steps away. Um, and we also have our, our breathing. That's this discrete, like unit-based activity, which is very different, for instance, than when you have like a bird soaring through the sky from one tree to the next, it's, which is not in the same way we just subdivide our entire experience of the world, which to me connects to rhythm. But then I was also thinking about how maybe we can connect rhythm and pitch in terms of just multiplying, multi like multiplications of some event. Like if, um, if a fundamental tone is a certain frequency how we find multiples of that, you know, the overtone series or mathematical ratios of that to be pleasing or displeasing, you know, et cetera. Um, like the, the, the simple ratios, more pleasing, more stable, et cetera. That there's something true also about rhythm, that the rhythm you played, for instance, was very regular, that was based on some sort of unit and that had these kind of like, you know, like uh, repeat, yeah, meter that fell into meter that changed, but was like still like this kind of like grouping into some certain some number of elements or something. And I think that that in both of these worlds, like I think that evolutionarily clearly it's tapping into things that we that we relate to. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from our need to understand where sound comes from and to understand the the voice of your family. Um, which is based on pitch, we need to know pitch. I'm sure there's so many, so many evolutionary reasons for us being like attracted and under to understanding certain sound. Um, I don't remember where I was going with that. Um, <laughs> but that's, I mean, that starts to finally get to um, the title of this talk, the this the conversation, rhythm, right? The rhythm, because the rhythm. Let's talk more about rhythm. I'd be very interested to know from both scientists and musicians about the, you know, the mind in bodily action, I mean, because you're describing something about the movement of the body, there's the, the, the sensory elements that you're receiving, and what, what about those aspects of, of your experience of music? Well, you know, I, I go back often to um, 
this quote by one of my favorite pianists, his name is Cecil Taylor. Uh, there was a film called Imagine the Sound that came out in the early 80s, and it opens <laughs> with this line. It's, a, it's, a, it's in an interview with Mr. Taylor. He says, well, to me, what music is, is everything that you do. So he grounds it in it. Not everything you hear, uh, but everything you do. So he grounds it in action. Um, and of course, our actions are, you could say, constrained in the sense that there are only certain things that we can do with our bodies. Like, there's only so fast you can walk. You know, you, we don't walk at 10 hertz. We walk closer to 1 or 2 hertz, right? Per, you know, in terms of cycles per second, right? Um, we don't breathe uh, at 10 hertz. We breathe at, you know, 1 or less than 1, you know, half a hertz or more like a tenth of a hertz if you're meditating. So these kind of create these national, natural constraints on action, which are temporal. And, uh, and then grouping those actions, like you say, in ways that are either regular or not, but that we can synchronize. Because, you know, I guess for me, if it's about everything that you do, um, who's the you, first of all? It's all of us, right? So. It's everything that we do together as well, which means like our ability to synchronize our actions, which is so fundamental to music making and music listening is that, well, um, the fact that we can actually generate a pulse and then have everybody clap that pulse together, for example, and then that we can sing in unison and these kinds of things. I saw... Um, this one paper, this scientific paper about, you know, there's a lot of speculative origins about music, like why are we even able to do this? And one idea was that if I clap by myself, it's only as loud as I can clap. But if we're able to clap in unison, then it's suddenly twice as loud, which means it reaches twice the distance, which is four times the area, which is four times as many people. So suddenly it's this massive communicative leap because we can do things together. We can reach more people and we can synchronize more. Um, so that to me seems like it's so grounded in us doing things together that, that uh, I don't see how we can talk about music without thinking about it in social terms. It's really interesting when we were talking about also about grouping the poles, which for me is eternal. The, the poles is always there. We just can open to listen to the pulse, but we are pulse. I mean, our heart is pulsating, but also there is something pulsating. Then how we organize the pulse is the key for, for starting to talk about, which are the cycles, because that pulse is eternal, kum, kum, kum. But then depending on how we organize that pulse into cycles, then we're gonna be able to breathe and, and walk. And through the breath, then for me, melody start to happen. So for me, this is like the, the key of music. It's like this pulse that is eternal, that is always accessible. And if it's, a, if it's a steady, we can just create anything. But then that cycle that we decide is going to generate the breath. And from the breath, the melody. And that's it. So then when we all stump together, you know, you want to do guys like a little experiment? Maybe doing something? So let's just let's do this. Right? 
So this is just, just like an eternal like pose that is always right there, right? So and as he, he said, you, if we just start, for example, like doing. <laughs> okay, now we, is how, what is the cycle, right? So this is just, you see how, how, how fast we get into it? Without not even thinking about it, you know? But then if we start adding the melody, just will be the way that we breathe. And I like to understand that each, each country, the difference about, about music is different ways of breathing. Mm-hmm. It's different we breathe, you know? And rhythms, is, each culture has a different rhythm, you know? But I believe that also there is like, a, underneath the roots, there is a common rhythm and a common pulse that we can really all get together and really communicate. So maybe a better title for this would have been embodied cognition and embedded cognition in the sense that it's not only about the sensory motor of the individual but the social connection. I that, believe that uh, is a social, that co- absolutely And social. cognition is embedded also in the interaction. But, but it's a social, it's a very interesting part of the social, uh, uh, you know, social um, communication between humans that does not involve ideas. Actually, one thing music is miserable at doing, which I find remarkable, is communicating ideas. Stravinsky said music is incapable of communicating ideas. By ideas, I mean something not like feeling or emotion. For example, let's take an idea. Um, Let's say child labor is abhorrent. I can write a poem, portray that no problem. I can make a painting showing child labor somewhere in the bowels of some factory in in India and make you you revolt in in, in your feeling of injustice. Uh, I can make a movie. I can make a but try to make a symphony that portrays this, the sentence, child labor is abhorrent, is very hard. Let me ask you. And this. I find that spectacular. It, 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 po- it points to the uh, visceral power of music. What you are talking about, uh, if we talk about, none of us mention ideas, by the way, which I, which I think is natural. We don't think of music as a, a little paragraph in the New York Times can portray more ideas than all of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yet we all think, you know, not, they are incredibly powerful. But you, um, you said something using your voice in rhythm and with pitch, and you then said that that wasn't music. And so that is also that involves you having drawn a line about this is outside of music. Me saying something is not music. So you're saying that speech is not music, and that to me is not so clear a distinction. You're making a distinction. Uh, about sonorous human action. I'm, I'm using my early, very simplistic definition of music as, uh, as sounds which interact with us. Of course, once you put speech in the middle, then the, that line, this is why I start saying I really have no clue what music is from the beginning, and I, I, I divested myself from any, any really good knowledge of the whole business, especially in front of musicians. But I, 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 once you start putting um, speech and tonality, of course I'm, making, I'm using these. But I'm talking, can you imagine just using pure sounds, how you can probably portray ideas especially if there's a cultural context. But it's not the most efficient way of all, of all forms, I think. Well, that's, that's what I'm... Good middle ground is Morse code, which is like using rhythm specifically to encode information. And I mean, I think on a working level, you're, I, I, I do agree that there... I don't want to get too caught up in this part of the conversation, but I do think that there is... Um, sort of like 
the absolute truth of what is music, and I cannot argue with the op entirely open-endedness of that. Um, but I do think that um, culturally, in 2015 or whatever, um, on and, the Upper East Side, yeah, we can <laughs> like probably there's a consensus about what music is, and and written, you know, spoken word does not necessarily fall into that. Which basically, or at, at the very least, we can talk about music that includes language or something that specifically has identifiable meaning and music that doesn't. Maybe we could at least not say that it's only, that's the only kind of music. And at least for me as a composer, I am really not interested in communica communicable narrative through text and language. I'm much more interested in abstract forms and stuff. So my music falls to the nonverbal side of things. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I think I can even do like music at all is that um, I'm really I really don't have much to say for the narrative side of it. But I think that's actually definition of music. It's a non-representational way of communication. This is why we even cannot compare it with Morse because Morse still gives you letters. In music, we have no recognizable images. We have no words to translate. We have nothing tangible. We just have a flow of sounds organized in tonal relationships. They all, it's a rhythm. Uh, because uh, in music, like in, in conventional music, we are talking about two dimensions, most important dimensions. It's time dimension, era of time. It's a rhythm, meter and rhythm, and tonal relationships. And music can be without tonal relationships. Uh, and it could be very effective as a... Um, uh, natural uh, demonstrates. You can use different rhythms to influence people in different psychological state and produce different results. And it's really spectacular. Well, do, do, you, do you think that music can get away from any kind of metaf metaphorical representation? I mean, wh when you have alterations in time and space or tone, it almost seems that it, Im it implies a certain metaphoric interpretation on, on some level. And that how can you really get away? It's it's not the same as using words, but you know a, one tone might be higher than the other, and this is going to create certain spatial metaphors in sorcery. <laughs> well, but, but it also maps onto mm -hmm. something of again getting back to embodied cognition. It maps back onto bodily experience and experiences in time and space. Yeah. Yeah, basically, but this is what I tried to find in my studies when I measured people's responses to different tonal tension, to different tonal distances. And the responses to tonal distances were expressed in, in, a, in a sense of perceived tension, but also in a sense of perceived brightness and perceived warmth. The thing, Marina, but that's, it's, um I, I, I did not finish yet. I did right. not finish. So basically, when we listen to music, uh, when we when we perceive this world, we are either very comfortable and very relaxed, or we, are, we can be frightened, we can be tense, and we it's it's physical tension. And so we can think about our life in general uh, as sequences of tension and release. Uh, like it's a very simplified, terribly simplified explanation of music that music captures this particular aspect of living. It basically gives us sequences of tension and release that somehow recreates emotion, recreates our living. When we listen to music, we live through music. 
it's always in time. It's tightly controlled in time. We experience psychological state in time. It's developing through those tension and releases, through those synesthetic reactions, warmth and brightness. Some music does something to us that makes us live life in parallel. It's a sorcery. I, I just, like, like I told you, I was, as an applied philosopher, I looked into the VA Foundation of Music and I'm trying to give something tangible, some explanation. This is what I found with data. Yes, uh, I'm again sharing with him, I think this is cultural. What is warmth and what is, and what is cold? That is culture because if we, if we do an experiment with you know, tapping into different cultures, maybe we can agree on that. But my mm -hmm. perception, for example, for me is a, a seven, a cycle in seven, super stable. Nobody will say that. A cycle in five, for me, is really stable and also for the brain. But and let me finish. So brightness, warmth, tension, harmony. Those concepts, I don't think that really even define music. They do not. They and define only melodic it, elements. This is very important. I'm not talking about global music perception. I'm talking about where it begins. Like a single cell doesn't define human organism, but we need to study human cell, how it functions, in order to understand how the organism uh, functions. And as far as uh, cultural constructs, yes, music is cultural construct. But the same study, the replica of it, of my study, my, my, was run in India with people who never had this experience of moving on different tonal distances, modulations. And the, the, the results were the same. I'm talking about subconscious, precognitive perception. Yes, there is a European tradition, there are different traditions, but the studies show again and again that people capture the heart of musical message. Even this musical message comes from different cultures. Music is the universal language. All other languages, if, if I start talking in French or Russian, only a few people would understand me. Because well, I think music falls into that category, too. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot, probably most of the kinds of music in the world are not necessarily music to everybody at first listen. Um, I, for one, listen to a lot of noise music that's built specifically on, like, um, a richness of, of harmonic overtone and, and, and spectrum that wouldn't collapse nicely into ratio, into clean ratios at all. And um, You mean uh, the folk music or invented music? Um, I guess I, I'm coming at it from noise music, particularly maybe an electronic sound oh, or I'm talking in like only rock about sound. folk music. Only talk only talk, only about living traditions, something which was developed by people through real musical practice, not the invention. What happens in music, and this is really fascinating, uh, yes, there are all these experimentations. Mm -hmm. And the experimentations are wonderful because they give impetus for development of new expressive means. But there is also such things as craftsmanship. When you looked into, if you look into the uh, creations of Jürgen Sebastian Bach, even his sons called him Oldwig, like, you know, old-fashioned. But if you look carefully in his compositions, you would find polytonality, you would, have, you would find whole tone scale, you would find some amazing thing which we already seeded and then developed as avant-garde. I am very much for avant-garde uh, experimentations because this is what gives new life to music. What do you think about the sort of inherent um, problem 
in, in pitch between pure intonation, like just intonation and equal temperament. Oh, it's, it's a fantastic theme. It's fantastic. I, I remember I was torturing. Well, so just to, um, yeah, I, I was torturing. Yeah, it's, it's about there are two, tuning. Let, let just, right, there are two approaches to tuning, the sort of um, natural one, which mm -hmm. maybe we often sing in, which yeah. is frequencies being clean, yeah. multiples and ratios of frequency to one another. Um, but then in Western music in particular, um, uh, for instance, with the invention of the piano, mm -hmm. I don't know my music history so well, but equal temperament is a way of um, sort of pushing this clean mathematical representation of pitch into something that is more regular and that can be, for instance, transposed and um, exactly. you got this idea of keys and stuff like that. But um, it, it mostly lines up, but it doesn't quite line up. So it's a fantastic theme. Yeah, it's, let me give some foundation for what we are talking about. I, I, I don't know if you were finished <laughs> with your remarks. Well, I was just uh, there's yeah. there's this kind of inherent um, divide between them. You can either go one way towards this sort of pure world of sound, which happens to actually be like what we natively sing in, um, and it has there's sort of so many things to say about it. I'm not sure where to start exactly, but. Um, it's always built off of a fundamental frequency, which is yeah. kind of like your, your unit of time. Yeah. Um, whereas in equal temperament, which is, for instance, where the piano example came from, um, uh, everything is slightly out of tune, so does to make it work. But and they're pretty close, so it mostly works. For, mostly works, but but there is kind of like this fundamental problem. Yeah, I, 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 the I, question actually is wanna, I actually want to change yeah. the. Just no, the, I, I just want to shift a little bit. It's terrifically important, just one Please, minute. Just, we, we, you know, okay. we can always get back to it during the, right. the, the question and answer period. But you know, we haven't had a chance to hear a little bit more about your acoustical research, and I thought it was a very important dimension to bring into. I'm talk about my, my parochial interest, but, uh, <laughs> but I think there is, there is a, 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 despite the, you know, the chatter, so to speak, there, there is a common, I think we can all agree that there's a whole spectrum uh, uh, from all the way from very culturally conditioned um, perception of sound that we call music, we can change across time, as you as you said, across cultures. And but there's also some. I think also. Um, uh, I think what you're saying has. I agree with a good part of it. it there's fun, some fundamental uh, built-in perception of music that has to do with our evolution, most likely. So the whole spectrum. I don't find that shocking at all. Um, I, I I do think there are. Uh, taken out of context, m many music can be abhorrent. Can can really, uh, if you take a popular music of one culture, put it in, in another. Even today, despite the internet, it can you know uh, elicit uh, you know uh, at least boredom, if not uh, revolt, in some cases. Not, so that's definitely. Uh, but I, I don't think I don't see anything shocking about it. Also, I added the fact that it's not particularly good. At, uh, Communicating ideas, that doesn't mean it cannot communicate ideas. Stravinsky went to extremes that it can't, it's incapable. But I don't think it's the best way, if you want to write an op-ed, to write it in a sonata form. Uh, it's better to write, in, you know. So, uh, so I think we all, despite, I think we all covering different same ground at the end. But I'd like to ask another question that maybe changed the perception, uh, maybe the discussion a little bit. In your own realm as musicians, uh, what do you find uh, lacking in terms of uh, um, tools, so to speak, not tools I'm talking about, but what is it that you would like to be able to do that you can do now? I mean, is there anything 
you reach, I mean, of course, you're all accomplished musicians. And I've actually, this morning, I sat in bed and listened to, to all of you. And it was remarkable, the, the variety and tremendous spectrum. But um, as musicians, do you, do you feel that there is a, an exploratory part of what you do, aside from performance, that you're reaching for something that hasn't been done or you, you want to do? And if, if it is so, what, what is it? <laughs> uh, well, I can say as an improviser um, that we're always, you know, kind of make it our business to reach for the unknown. I mean, that's like the name of the game. Um, uh, you know, you can, or in other words, um, what really transforms and what really communicates is um, in that moment, in the, in the improvisative moment, is somebody um, or a group of people um, on the edge of what they know, um, on the edge of what they're masters at, where you find it maybe almost breaking apart to this space where you're not even sure if it's music anymore, where you're right on that boundary. And that, to me, that vulnerable place is the most rewarding aspect of music. Um, I mean, I experienced it last night. Uh, I really didn't know what was happening, but I knew that we were all experiencing it together. I mean, everybody in the room. And that is, to me, um, so I guess I'm not really saying, like, what don't I have, because I am very fortunate to get to say I had that experience last well, night. Well, actually, it's an answer what you are reaching for. So you're reaching that moment of improvisation where you are almost untethered from everything you've heard before, and you're experiencing something new. Well, you know, yeah. For me, I it's mean, terrifying to be a pianist like you. I mean, for me, if I, if I was a pianist like you, sitting on the piano, I'm thinking of Theronius Monk. I'm thinking of uh, you know, every uh, great jazz pianist before me, and I'd be terrified that I'm, what am I going to? What am I going? What, where am I going to go from there? Except every good musician performs without this fear, and you, you, you said you do so by pushing yourself to an edge. And, and, and I'm trying to, to get a feeling to, to what that edge is about. So what happens there when, when you get to that point? You know, um, the thing is that we've all been we've all been there. I mean, we're all improvisers. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the same way that we can debate until the cows come home, if they ever do, I don't know if people stay there anymore, about what music is, we can also have a similar conversation about what improvisation is. And the more you examine that concept, it also kind of melts away in the sense that, well, every, everything we do is imp improvised, except the things that aren't. And that stuff we know, like, well, oh, they all did the same thing at the same time, so they probably weren't improvising. Like, they must have how do they know how to do that? You know, or you know, but even that is an illusion that can be, um, you know, like uh, dancers use this, uh, they do this, there's an improvisational dance technique called flocking, where, you know, if, if you just follow the person in front of you and I started doing this, then we all started doing this and suddenly it looks choreographed, you know? So that, that kind of thing of like the fact that we can um, just in the spur of the moment do something in sync or in it's unison. Sort of resonance. It's yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, um, so another, what I was going to say is that improvisation is something we're born doing in the sense that we're, 
you know, it's how we explore the world. It's how we come to learn about our environments. It's how we learn to do everything. It's how we learn to talk, how we learn to eat. You know, I mean, very how we learn to walk is by a lot of stumbling around and eventually finding a path, you know? And that's really, um, to me, we're always doing that. Um, so that's a very primal experience. And so experiencing that in the course of performance, where you know you, you develop all this mastery at these different instruments and stuff, but then you also take yourself to this point where um, this, uh, the, the, um, the sort of uh, ideas side or the kind of intellectual side or the um, uh, deliberate side of you, like the stuff that uh, plant, the, the part of you that plans what to do next and when to do it and how to do it, that seems to become relaxed. It's almost like being drunk, actually, when you basically make a lot of bad, bad decisions. <laughs> but uh, um, it's sort of like having no, um, well, uh, Charles Lim, you, may, you guys may know about his work. He uh, did MRIs, fMRIs of people improvising which is a very strange thing. I mean, they were lying down on their backs <laughs> with a keyboard strapped to them. <laughs> and he had the one control condition where they played a memorized piece and another controlled, another condition, the, the, te the, the test trial where they were asked to improvise on a blues or something like that on a keyboard. Um, so then he found that certain um, uh, cognitive functions are um, relaxed, like the, um, dis the uh, self guiding kind of um, the, the uh, self-consciousness is basically relaxed and then you find yourself just acting. Um, so when there's a sort of unity of thought and action, I guess that's sort of the thing that to me is kind of like, I guess it's also been described as a flow state and that kind of thing. I wonder if, um, if that the pursuit of that moment in improvisation, that sort of threshold, to me I see that as the pursuit of the live experience, like the total liveness, like being in the moment where the future is in the future and the past is in the past and you're sort of like right there between them. And I 100% agree with you in the improvisational context, but I think that that actually is part of all of our experience. Even if we're playing a piece of music, that we've rehearsed a thousand times. Like, there's still no certainty that the next moment will be what was planned or will be something different. Mm -hmm. And that is a fundamental difference between the live experience and the recorded experience. Mm -hmm. And going to the, back to the, the word body in the title, I think that the sort of live experience is the presence of our body in this space, you know, listening to someone play music and not necessarily knowing what's next, which is so fundamentally different than listening to a recording. And it's true, your CD player might die the next moment, or you know, <laughs> things might interrupt the listening experience, but the, the, um, the expectation, the sort of like state of listening to a recording is one of listening to something that's already been like set in a record, in a recorded form, in like a archived form. And that doesn't afford this uncertainty. Right. But still it can give pleasure. Of course. Yes. Sure. I, um, I mean, I recently found on YouTube uh, a little solo of uh, Johnny Hodges playing All of Me. Mm -hmm. And I played it 
25 times in a row. And then I found somebody crazier than, than I am on YouTube who actually reproduced the solo on guitar, note per note. Mm -hmm. Lissando Bacchisano is exactly the same. So even something... I think I know her. Uh, you know, is it he or she? It's a, it's a he, I think. Jacob Turver is the name of the guitarist. But the point is, um, even something as ossified or as frozen as a recording done in 1934, 1954 in Switzerland, which was the case, can be an incredible source of pleasure. Yeah. And, but I'm curious to ask you this question. At the other end of, of improvisation, which is when something is superscripted, even to the point of taking a human out. Now, John Cage tried exactly to, to do that. He took the <laughs> I Ching and tried to use, take the human completely out. And even the duration of the notes, the pitch of the notes, everything was prescribed by dice. And he, he obtained a composition. Of course, when you play it, you have all these uncertainties that you're talking about. But well, how, how can you then explain which is the opposite end of the spectrum from, from your improvisation. For me, that's really interesting. How, how do you explain uh, the musicality of such a, such a thing um, as a musician? Because there is an intention. Mm -hmm. Before doing it, mm -hmm. there is an intention of what, why I'm doing this and what is my internal setting. And that's going to affect completely the music, but most of all, the tone and the resonance of what I'm doing. So sometimes you can have the tone, and we have the same tone on the say, or the same solo, but what is going to make that experience being different for you that are listening and for me that I'm playing that, uh -huh. the intention of the player. It's going to shift everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if it's improvisation yeah. or if it's like abstract music. What is is, for me, sound is a container, or music is a container, a vehicle. So you put your intention there, and then sounds travel, and it's going to hit you. Mm. And what is going to hit you is not even the sound. It's going to hit you the intention, mm. which is information. So maybe that's the language you were referring before. Well, information, not ideas. I mean, information. Exactly. Ideas or emotions, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of contemporary composition in the, uh, in the um, I guess, people who call them, I mean, I, I'm also a composer, so I'll put myself in this category. But people who call themselves composers, um, you know, they're in the business of scripting actions for, mm -hmm. for musicians. For performers to then perform and become the sort of vessel for the composer's intention or will or something like that. But what I find is, um, uh, so a, a friend of mine, Steve Schick, the first time I met him was about 20 years ago. He was performing this piece called Bone Alphabet. Do you know this piece by Globocar, Vinko Globocar? It's like what you were talking about, but it's worse in the sense that it's, uh, he, it's extremely intricate polyrhythms, you know. 7 over 11 over 13, stuff like that. Every bar is different. He said he had to learn one measure a day for about five weeks. That was all he did, was uh, put himself through this thing. And it was like, in the end, though, when I saw him perform it, it wasn't about the composer. It was actually about him. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like you're saying, in the sense that he so fully embodied this piece to the point that it, he owned it. I mean, it was his. And the way he described it was that when he um, is really uh, popping, or when it's really popping, like when it's really together, there's this flow that he described as like yoga, uh, which is, um, and what yoga means is, I mean, the, the word literally means yoke, as in the sense of tie together, and it means tying together the mind and the body. That's basically what the the meaning of that is. So basically what he meant is that uh, he feels connected, you know. 
This is really you know, about the body. This is really interesting because and about the title of the of the discussion about embodied condition. So what I want to, to what I, what is lacking or what I want is to be united with yoga. That's the, the meaning of yoga. To be united in body and mind. I mean, I mean, experience of, as a performer is like how I can achieve my best performer performance and also in sync and jumping to the unknown with certainty that I'm going to be safe is relying on the body. It's really, really, it's really getting out of my mind of what should be played now, what is the next bar, how this should sound. It's like, my intention is to jump and to jump with you and meet you there. And I don't know what is going to happen, but you know what happened when the performers, even in a composition, we create from that place, the audience jump with you because they really experience that there is a jump in the head, jumping into the unknown. And when that synchronicity happens with with, with, with the members of the ensemble is this, this amazing like feeling of unison and unity with something else that aligns your body and your mind and aligns the body and the mind of, of all the performance. And what happened next for me is the important thing. Because what I want to achieve is after that moment is silence. So what I want to promote, you know, with the music is silence. Because silence is a stillness after all this movement that, that sound and music has, has provoked in you, for you to organize and change in your molecular level, your psychology, but just silence is that space when we can really finally be different and reinvented and created again. And on that note, we're going to open things up to uh, the audience members. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, State your name and uh, please uh, put your comments in the form of a question for uh, the participants. You can line up and use the microphone there. Don't be shy. Is this on? Yes. Thank you so much for your comments and all of this. I'd just like to, I've been tangling with these same questions for a lifetime, and it finally occurred to me reading here and there that music fundamentally, you know, is emotion experienced and expressed in a different way, a safe way. And when you hear that, I'm just wondering how you respond. And people like Alice Miller, the drama, the gifted child for your own good, she said, emotion attaches meaning to experience. You can't take anything you've learned, studied, or read. It will not make sense unless you attach an emotion to it. And so music on two levels, I'd just like to say real fast, Orpheus, when he played his lute 2,500 years ago, Prometheus stopped having his liver torn out. Tantalus got out of the, the river and stopped with the low-hanging fruit. And Sisyphus sat on his... His, stop, his stone and all the, the spirits in Hades just stopped their torment and torture. And it also occurred to me hearing it, how many thousands of young people have died hearing the drum and the trumpets in military expressions for thousands of years? So this whole thing about emotion being expressed safely through music, but very little understanding. And in India, they say resonance produces light. We live in an intelligence. I would just love to hear any of your reactions to the connection between emotion, learning, and music. Thank you. You know, there's a, uh, 
French um, economist named Jacques Attali. Did you ever read his book, Noise? It's from the 70s. It's called Noise, the Political Economy of Music. It's really a landmark book. Um, and he, you know, he basically he talks about the history of Western music, but as, as an economist. So it's actually about like um, more social questions, basically about why this sort of thing might have uh, come about. And one thing he said was that uh, in the beginning, at least, uh, when society started to organize in ways that were that had music, um, that it represented a um, it was a ritual of control to combat the prevailing sense of chaos in the in the world around us. You know, the sense that of completely complete unpredictability. Here's a way where we can, can you know, control ourselves, control each other, uh, and uh, work together. Do something that is organized. It may have been the first organized thing that humans ever did. You know. And it's a way of uh, staving off that, basically, the fear of the unknown, the fear of death, the fear of, you know, predators, or the fear of whatever might befall us in the next moment. So it becomes this ritual of safety, you know. Yeah, I think especially the fear of unknown, because if you're historically music, we didn't touch on religion, but uh, uh, historically, until, until now, to, to a large extent, uh, music was enshrined in, in religion. Uh, the secular aspect of music was, uh, until recently, was a, was a minority, so to speak, was a, was a relative rarity. So uh, uh, the fear of the unknown, which is, to my opinion, as a non-religious person who respects religion, is, is, is central to religion. And I think uh, in that same vein, I explain um, the centrality of, of music as an experience. It's a, it's a spiritual way of dealing with the unknown. And this is, and the best way to express religion, uh, religious thought, uh, one of the best, an essential way of, of expressing religious thought has been through music. Yeah, and emotional component of music. Uh, both speech and music came from uh, vocal production. When we talk, we always give emotional color. If we start talking without emotional uh, input, the, the speech would become very boring, mechanistic. So at some point in human evolution, the first signaling system, the expression of pleasure, of, uh, of right, bifurcated on symbolic representation language and music. Then melodic component of first signaling system became used for emotional expressiveness. Um, yeah, and um, uh, in, the, uh, in the model of triune brain, by Paul McLean, which it's a model which was developed by Jak Panksepp. Uh, the first layer, it's our reflexive reactions to the world. The next layer, it's our emotional understanding of uh, our reactions to the world. The next level is thinking about thought. And it's clear today that there is no clinically healthy thinking without emotional impact. So this is what music carries on, it's emotional communication. And it does it in a very simple way, available for everybody, but still is able to, de to uh, deliver stunningly complex messages. 
also saying it's the difference between life and death. Yes, there's always, if we, if we, I think, if we, if we see rituals around the world, there's always music. And why? Because music supports, supports that processes. In funerals, you know, in, for example, in, in India, in the nursing homes, you know, the pro during the process of dying, you want to be surprised because of our culture, you know, which kind of music they put for when people are dying. They are not using hard melodies. There are a lot of percussive, percussive sound, really intense. Do you maybe believe that? We here because we will see that emotionally we want this kind of harp, angelic sounds. They use a lot of percussion, maybe because rhythm carries. They believe that rhythm carries the soul and can go there, you know. And also, you know what? Being in Mexico, also in in some rituals and funerary rituals, when. Music is not just for the soul that is traveling, it's also for the, for the family that is around to be able to handle pain. Music, we can, we can rely on that structure that is provided through rhythm, basically, and sometimes through melody, to really release and, and balance our emotions. You know? and, of, and of course, if we, if we go around the world, all the prayers, which is to connect to the unknown, to really communicate, are based with melodies as always, we always just the voice praying, you know? So for me, it's really, really important that we just, why if we look a little bit back, back look to, for traditions and rituals and see how they've been using music? Because it's really basic. Melodies, for me, has been the prayers, how the internal being, the psychology of the, of the spirit communicates with the trans, something transcendental. And rhythm promotes dance, and dance of the community. And that's how, with that tools, we can really balance our emotions and go through daily life being able to go through the challenges because there are challenges, and now in our in our in our in our ages, for me sometimes tension is really good because because tension matches the tension of the soul. So if I'm tense, I don't want to listen uh, like really like light music. I want I love to listen a lot of jazz, and when I compose a lot of tension, because that is gonna match my emotion. And you know what music does when you match that emotion without judgment, and you are with that naturally. With that tension, what music does is going to come to a flow, to a new balance, which maybe is release. But sometimes balance is tension. Well, these ideas are also very consonant with the, uh, the experience of the infant in the kind of call response with the mother's voice, that the mother's rhythmic touching and the intonations of the mother's voice also helps control, organize, and provide a sense of safety for the infant, to organize the infant's inchoate experiences. So it's all very, I think, resonant with the earliest experiences of, of the individual. Another question. Um, I'm Christina Catapotis. I'm an English PhD student at CUNY. And thank you so much for this amazing um, talk and in the interest of call and response I'm really interested in music as a conversation and when you had mentioned silence I got really excited because I'm interested in this idea of regulation of breath and how in a conversation there's this desire or intention for a response and um, this like holding of breath to listen to the other side and this difference between listening and hearing and Spirit and breath have an etymological history, and I was wondering if you could talk, since you were talking about time, 
how um, spirituality, transcendentalism, religion affects music. For example, the difference between someone who believes in an afterlife and someone who doesn't, whose time operates differently. If time is a construct and music is social or socially constituted, then how does our perception of time affect music? I mean, ideally, really, this is really interesting. It's like when we, when we create a cycle, a measure, that is going to affect completely the breath. So that is going to affect you, the experience of the, of, the, of, the, of the music. So for example, if I have a pulse, I used to compose rhythm with my fingers. So it's really different if, imagine if, I, if I count in five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. I'm creating a cycle and you start breathing with me. But if I do six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Now five. Six. You see that it's completely different, and everything relates in how I'm, I'm which cycle I'm, I'm creating, and that is gonna completely guide you into 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 a breath, and that breath into a melody, or or, or a harmonic rhythm if you are creating church. Does that make sense? Uh, I guess I'm gonna. Um, my experience in uh, performance, uh, you know, playing in rooms full of people, you know, where we can all hear each other. Um, and in particular, we can hear each other breathing. I mean, as we actually can hear if we really listen. And, you know, what I've found is um, my best sense of whether, you know, I make it uh, as a performer um, my job to make sure I somehow reach everybody in the room you know, um, and if I don't do that, I can tell. Like I can tell when that's not happening, and I can hear it. You know, uh, and there are moments that I've experienced where you actually hear everybody breathe together. Like really, everybody takes a breath at the same moment because music brought them to that. It's a magic moment. Because it's uh, somehow it's helping us synchronize our internal actions to that point, you know. Uh, so that to me is, I mean, um, when we talk about spirituality, it seems like we're starting from experiences like that, like this sort of sense of the self kind of expanding to encompass others, you know, and suddenly we have this awareness of non-singularity. And uh, that to me is, um, Anyway, that's how I'll answer you. Um, I think that time and, I'm not sure how I'm gonna put this all together, but time and spirituality are related in the sense of either being contained or being open-ended. And that is, maybe grounded in our experience or grounded outside of our experience. And I work a lot with electronics in my music. And I program these very basic 
microchips to synthesize sound, and they play alongside an ensemble. Um, and so there's a communication thing there. But um, in one piece of mine, I have the music eventually settle into a chord. And it's sort of a musical event. You get to this chord that's slower and slower. And then that chord is programmed to play forever. Of course, things like the battery run out, or maybe you know, it gets destroyed or something. So there, you know, laws of entropy prevent it from being from playing forever. But nonetheless, the gesture is towards infinity, and that's um, I think more like a mathematical gesture. And I think I'm bringing maybe too many ideas here, but computation is sort of this embodiment of mathematics. It's sort of like mathematics in the real world. And through computation, or even a simple instruction like play this note forever, you kind of gesture towards the infinite, whether or not you can actually attain it. And I think that that gesture is a gesture towards something larger than us. In fact, it's a gesture towards something larger than the universe, probably. We don't know. Um, and to me, that's maybe as close as it comes. Yeah, uh, yeah you're pointing out uh, the metaphorical power of music, which I think is, is uh, we, we haven't touched on. Um, you mentioned something about silence. Um, in some music traditions, silence is very important. In some other, for example, in Arabic and uh, traditional Arabic music, traditional Japanese music, silence can be integral part of a piece. While like in Gaelic music, if you listen to Scottish bagpipe, there's a drone going on all the time. Never going to stop assure you that there's a flow. Both operate a metaphorical, I think, arrows, so to speak, that point to breath, maybe, to um, salvation, to, to security. And um, they operate on maybe on a very mechanistic level, but we find them very aesthetically pleasing. If you listen to a drone going on, same thing with the continuum in, in Baroque music, it has a function of giving you sustenance, while a note that stops can give you a, a, you know, eerie feeling. There, if, if you go to Krakow, there is a, um, the, 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 the bell tower, and every one, one hour there's a trumpet that plays. And it, it plays this haunting, beautiful trumpet theme, and suddenly it stops. Every hour of the day, forever. Since, since, the, since the guy who played it was one time during the, uh, uh, during the, uh, the, uh, invasion at some point in the 14th century, I think, of Poland, he was shot by an arrow and in the middle of his tone. So to commemorate that act, there is that tone every day for one hour. And it doesn't matter how many times you hear it, it the sudden stop of that tone invokes you know, loss. So the metaphorical arrow towards loss that plays on a fundamental level, I think is a very powerful part of music. Ian, I'm going to give you the last question. And before you get to it, I'm going to ask, maybe Nacho, there are some things you haven't used yet, but we'll do that after the question. I thought it would be a nice way to end the roundtable to maybe invoke a kind of communal experience with uh, Ian Buckingham. Um, maybe appropriate in this setting to recall that Sigmund Freud was famously non-musical. And this is attributed to various things, including particularly, perhaps, that he couldn't stand the sound of his younger sister practicing on the piano. <laughs> what, I what I think this may illustrate for us is that music obviously is culturally determined, but also psychologically determined. 
determined by individual and group psychology. And I think perhaps it ties in what, with what a number of speakers have said, that crucial aspect of music is the conveying of meaning by sound. It has to do with meaning. So I'd be interested in the views of the panel on that. Um, it seems that the music is the most um, effective uh, instrument of transfer of very complex information in a very simple way because of the main morphological principle, perceived tension, and it's so primitive, so simple. Uh, this is how music reaches uh, children with autism, uh, uh, people with very bad Alzheimer, basically gives them some kind of sanity for a, for a period of time, helps somehow people with Parkinson to to uh, restore coordinated movement for a while, and somehow also music helps to restore pe um, speech in people with Broca's aphasia, melodic intonation therapy. Um, it, it's a very strange way of communication, very, very powerful, that's true. Um, and it's, it also seems a very powerful way of prophylactics for the brain, cognitive prophylactics. We know that children who are trained in music, they gain a few IQ points. Uh, they basically related to short-term memory which shows uh, on verbal, on uh, uh, recall, uh, verbal included, on uh, num numbers recall. Uh, it, but now recent studies show that uh, music training helps people in their 60s, 70s, even 80s. Even, the, they, if, even if people start uh, musical training anew at the mature age, starting musical instruments gives them cognitive advantage, creates age compensatory mechanisms. And it happens most likely because of multisensory integration, when people look into notation and find right notes and listen and predict mel melodic future, it activates different parts of the brain, and this multisensory integration basically helps brain to stay in better cognitive health for a longer time. I'll, I'll take this opportunity, being in a house of psychoanalysis, to, and apropos of, of Freud, to suggest that uh, uh, embodied cognitive science is really rediscovering and expanding Freud's initial insights in, when he said that the first ego is the body ego, that as, as analysts, we're always listening for the metaphorical representations of the body in earliest experience, and how this, this maps emotional uh, connections to objects, so. Yes, and you see, when we respond to music, it's not intellectual response. We also can have intellectual response. For example, if you listen to some incredible, uh, some fugue by Bach, and if you know it very well, you can follow each voice and enjoy melodic transformation. But in general, what music gives us, it's a visceral pleasure. And music affects our breathing, our heartbeat, our hormonal system, uh, electric conductivity of skin, gives us pill erection, the, the shivers. So it affects us so directly, and it gives us the sense of living through life again in an aesthetic way. <laughs> so Nacho, if uh, 
Do you so, have yeah, something else I'm to demonstrate? Happy to, to create some sound with you. Or to create some sound. We were talking now <laughs> two hours. I was really thank you for giving me the opportunity. Oh, but may just say, uh, Nacho gives tonight a concert. Well, it's just like a little flamenco <laughs> show, but this, yeah. So I want, let's have a little experience. Uh, why I want, I want to welcome you, if you want, just to, you want to close your eyes and just put your hands like that. Exactly. And just try just to perceive with your hands.
Yamangeo 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 Thanks to all of our participants today. Thank you all. Okay. Thank you, everybody. That was wonderful. That was I felt we needed something to bring us all together, and that was that was beautiful. What, what is, huh? Oh yeah. Let's call this the singing ball.